As we prepare for the sermon today, our scripture reading is going to come from the book of Haggai and the book of Matthew. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is, time, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And from the book of Matthew. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Thanks to be, be to God. Thank you, Emily, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. It's good to be with you. Good to be home from a brief trip to California, speaking at a conference down there. Got home last night. I have a little bit of a cough. If I cough, don't worry. Don't call the medics. I feel fine. I just have a cough. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, let's take a moment. We'll pray. We're looking at the book of Haggai this morning. Who uh, read Haggai this week? Raise your hand. <laughs> this happens every time. No one reads Haggai. So it's, good to, it's a good thing we're together. Very, very important material. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're grateful uh, that we have the privilege of gathering within these walls to listen for your voice. We invite the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd shape us, that we'd hear what you're saying to us in this oft-neglected but very, very important truth. Thank you for the days in which we live, difficult though they may be, we cling to the truth that uh, where darkness increases, the light shines all the brighter. And our prayer is that you would make us people of light, even this morning, taking steps so that the light uh, that is hope found in Christ would shine through us collectively and individually. We'll thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin by telling a story from my days in Friday Harbor. as a pastor in Friday Harbor for seven years or so. We lived the first half of our time there on the south end of the island. So if you know the San Juan Islands, you know that from the south end of San Juan Island, you can see across the water to the Olympic Mountains and the lights of Squim and that kind of thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Uh, we would walk from the trailer in which we lived in a mobile trailer park. We'd walk down uh, toward the beach and halfway between where we lived and the water was a field. And in this field, there was a foundation of a house. And so you have foundation and a lot of building materials, weathered wood, decaying, uh, uh, some pipe, uh, some conduit for electrical wire, some electrical wire. It's all there. Weeds growing around it. It had been there for a few years at least. We didn't know how long. Don and I would go down there and we'd uh, uh, make a picnic and we'd sit on the foundation. And then we'd watch, you know, the beauty of creation. But we would also ponder together, you know, what happened? That these people began and didn't finish. 
And in our more creative moments, we'd uh, spin tales, you know, fictional tales. Oh, this is the house of, you know, Lois and John. And Lois went mad. <laughs> Killed all her children. <laughs> went away in a boat. She was the heiress to the wealth and there was no money. John was left only with a foundation. Whatever, right? It's fun to spin tales. But the reason I tell you the story is it's also tragic, right, to see a foundation and uh, an incomplete building. Luke 14, uh, verses 28 to 30. Who, having begun to build a building, I'm paraphrasing, who, having begun, will not uh, fail to complete it? And then especially verse 30, it says, if you begin to build and don't finish, then it will be said of you, this will be your reputation, this person began but did not finish. And now listen, this is a descriptor of many people's faith journey. Many, many people start strong, and then here's what happens. They face challenges, discouragement sets in, and when discouragement sets in, they shift their focus, shift their priorities <clears throat> in other directions, usually in hopes of in investing their time and resources in something less discouraging, less frustrating, something with a more immediate uh, uh, return, right? Like I'm frustrated because I'm doing this faith thing, but it doesn't seem to be anything happening. There's anxiety, there's rejection, uh, somebody got sick in the family, whatever it is, there's a difficulty. And now I've kind of slowly begun to divert my energies into things other than the kingdom of God. And uh, so when that happens, uh, they find themselves sometimes among Christ followers who are building on their foundation of Christ, and they're sharing exciting stories of what God is doing in their lives and in the world, how God is using them to bless others, the joy that they're finding in following Christ. And some of you in the room have felt this. You've left the foundation. You're not building God's building. And now you're hearing people who are, and you feel like an outsider. Does that make sense? And you're like, oh, yeah, this was true of me once, but not anymore. You've grown cynical or angry or doubting or weary. Uh, and, and so this reallocation of time, money, emotional energy away from the kingdom of God begin because of some discouragement, some frustration, and slowly begin to drift away, so to speak. But you're not satisfied either. It's a frustrating place to be. In fact, there's really nobody more miserable in the Bible than people who began the journey of faith and failed to complete it. There's nobody more miserable than those people. And this, now, this beginning with a building a foundation that is Christ and then not finishing, this is a common tale. When I travel and speak at these conferences, I hear this tale often. People say, you know, I'm still going through the motion of my faith, but I've lost all sense of reality. Or people who say, I'm tired of, you know, I go to church, but I'm tired, like it's meaningless to me now, you know. I hear it over and over again. I hear it from former students in the Bible schools where I teach. I see them 10 years later. They've lost their sense of hope in Christ. They began building on a very exciting foundation, but they've drifted away. Meanwhile, their reallocation of time, money, emotional energy away from the kingdom of God isn't yielding satisfaction or peace or joy, or intimacy, so they're frustrated. Jesus says, I've come, John 10, that you might have life. I've come, bam, that you might really live. I want to fill you to overflowing. That's the goal, but uh, for these people, no, not, they're not experiencing it. 
And so this is what we're talking about this morning, this common tale of falling short of what God wants for us. And it's a common tale, but not a new one. When you look at the, look at the scripture, you see over and over again, people still kind of showing up and going through the motions of faith outwardly, but their, their soul and their heart has been diverted to other things. And in the midst of it, they feel like God isn't real. One of the classic examples is in Ezekiel chapter 8, where there are people gathered in the temple, which we have buildings similar to this. They're gathered in the temple, but they're worshiping idols as they gather in God's temple. And as they're worshiping idols, there's a kind of a mantra that they're repeating. Ezekiel 8, 9, you can see it in there. They say, the Lord doesn't see us, the Lord doesn't hear us. In other words, they're not saying, ha ha, we're sinning and God doesn't see us, we're hiding. Are you kidding me? They're in the temple. If God would see them anywhere, that's where God would see them. This is, what this is their meaning. No, God isn't paying attention to us. We've lost all sense of the reality that God is like inwardly, deeply, intimately involved in our lives. We don't see it anymore. It's gone. <laughs> so this is the issue on the table. And if you are feeling this sense, oh, you know, where's God? I'm still here, but where's God? Where did I set my faith down? Why is it just kind of another Sunday? I have good news. First, God's not the problem. You are. And that's actually good news, right? Because I can't fix God. If God were the problem, that'd be a bummer. God's not the problem. You are. And second, it's still good news. There's a way back. So you can enjoy the reality of intimacy with Jesus. And, and being fully involved in the story that God is writing in the book, in, in, in this world. And so these truths are articulated beautifully in the book of Haggai, a book that nobody reads because they don't know how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> so what I'm going to do is set the context for you. Uh, some of you know this, but there was a temple. There was a city of Jerusalem. This is history we're talking about. It's not a fable. And there was, in history, a Babylonian takeover and the collapse of Israel. It happened in 586 B.C. Uh, the Babylonian Empire swept south, conquered, destroyed the city walls, destroyed the temple, carried away captive hundreds of thousands, about 300,000 probably uh, Jews, carried off north into Babylon. And then, 70 years later, there was a return under King Cyrus because the Babylonian Empire had collapsed and the new king uh, of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, said, if you're Jewish and you want to return to your homeland, you now can. 50,000 went back. And then under, under Ezra, and you read the book of Ezra early in the Bible, people began building the temple. So they started building the temple. They laid the foundation, and they had a worship service on the foundation. You read it in the book of Ezra. Powerful worship service. And then once the foundation was built, some Persians said, they went to, they went to King Darius, they said, listen, if uh, we allow this structure to be completed... Uh, there will be an insurrection. These people will rise up and fight for their own national identity and they'll, they'll try and cut themselves off from being under us. So let's just not let it happen. And a stop work order is put on the temple and so Israel gets very discouraged by this setback. Everybody gets involved in other things and the foundation sits there without a building. So the, the, the people are like this. We're just going to take a time out. We're going to do other stuff for a while. And then this for a while... Uh, becomes a month, becomes 10 months, becomes a year, becomes five years, becomes a decade, becomes 15 years, and there's a foundation, and there's some, you know, some paneling, and some conduit, and some electrical wire, and, and then there's a couple sitting on the foundation saying, what happened? 
Like, how did this happen that you started and didn't finish? And Haggai is the one who comes on the scene and calls people to re-examine their lives and their priorities and get, get on with the work that God had given to them, the very clear mandate to rebuild the temple. God wanted it done. And so Haggai's sermon uh, is toward that end, motivating people to build the temple. And uh, he motivates them in so doing to shift their priorities away from kind of personal pursuits to God's priorities, the story that God desires to write in the world through the nation of Israel. So they're called to shift their priorities. And we see this in three truths. Uh, truth number one, they've fallen for delay tactics. Truth number two, they're not satisfied. Truth number three, a solution is offered. So we're going to look at all three of those truths. They fall for delay tactics. Uh, they're not satisfied, and a solution is offered. Let's begin with this first one. They've fallen for delay tactics. It's in verses 2 and 3. So fun book to read. Listen as I read. Haggai stands up, and this, you can picture the foundation, and people got on with their lives. They're building their houses. They're running their businesses. They're raising their families. They're doing their thing. And then Haggai st stands up and says, this is what God says. God says, you people are saying the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. You people are saying the time has not uh, come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So here's what's happened. They've become discouraged by the stop work order, but the discouragement did not lead them to say, you know what, I'm done with God. I'm out of here. Oh, no, 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 no. They didn't say, forget you, God. We're going to live our own lives. They didn't do that. It actually would be maybe easier had they done that for them to return. What you hear, because here's what they did. They, instead of walking away and saying, I'm done with God, they slowly begin to get involved in other interests and priorities, and those other interests and priorities begin to take a hold on their lives, both their personal life and their life together as the people of God. And, and, and so their commitment to make God's reign visible through a nation slowly diminished drifted away, evaporated until now what you have is the people of God once in a while, yeah, gathering together for this or that, but fundamentally involved in their own private personal lives, their own upward mobility, their own well-being. And, and, and so when you ask them, you say, hey, what's up? This is what they say. Well, right now is not the time to be involved in God's stuff. This isn't the time to build the house of the Lord. So the seduction for these people is not that they said, you know, I'm done with God. No, no, no. Here's the seduction. This is what they said. Hey, the work of God, rebuilding the temple, absolutely, man. Supremely important in my life. Number one priority, just not now. Which is, hear me, an oxymoron. Number one priority, just not now. Then it's not your number one priority. Right? Yeah, yeah, we want to be involved in the work that God is doing in the world, but not now. It's soccer season. And so, you know, our kids are involved in, you know, they've got Sunday games, and so we don't, you know, doing soccer. But as soon as soccer's over, yeah, then, then we're, you know, we're all in. Yeah, we want to give, but right now, not right now, because, you know, my mortgage is very expensive. And so later, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give, but not now. Or maybe it's not your mortgage. We're saving for college for our children. And so, yeah, I absolutely want to give, but, but not now. And I, actually, I absolutely want to be involved, and I want to make uh, uh, attendance in the community of faith gathering so that we can testify to the world of the hope found in Christ. I want to make gathering a high, high priority, except on the Sundays when the Seahawks are on during the worship service. Like when they play on the East Coast, it's 10 a.m., so count me out. 
I'll be back next week. Supremely important, just not now. Just not now, because I'm single. As soon as I'm married, I'm in. Just not now, because I'm married. And, you know, we're going to go, we're going to know each other. As soon as we have kids, then we'll have time. Really? No, you won't. Because we have small children, not now. Because we have teenagers, not now. Because of the triple door, not now. Because of the bite of Seattle, not now. Because of the wineries in Woodenville, not now. Because of Seafair, not now. Because it's too cold out, not now. Because it's perfect out, not now. <laughs> and just hear me, this seduction of saying, I'm all in, just not now, this seduction... Um, Reign supreme in a land of a thousand distractions, and that's ours. I've had the privilege of preaching in India, and in India, <laughs> my friend Satish will send the Bible students out to a village, and they'll do an, op- an open-air meeting, like in other words, we'll meet in just a field somewhere, and Satish must get the permission of the village chief to go and preach. If, if he gains permission, he can, he can go preach anywhere. So he'll go and talk to the chief. The chief will grant him permission. And then, you know, 15 or 20 Bible school students will go and they'll, they'll, they'll go and preach to whoever shows up in the village. So uh, one of my experiences there was going with Satish with some Bible school students to a village. The priest had granted permission. Uh, it's a Sunday afternoon. Uh, it's about 70 degrees out. It's perfect weather. It's and the village is three, there's 300 people in the village. And of the 300 people in the village, about 300 of them are Hindu too, right? Perfect sunny day, bunch of Hindus. And here's 15 Bible school students coming to talk about a religion that, to which they don't belong and play bad guitar music and have a sound system that barely works. And how many people showed up? 300. Oh, and by the way, this is, wasn't like a 20-minute thing. This lasted for five hours. It, this is the pattern. Um, singing, skit, preaching. Singing, skit, preaching. Singing, skit, preaching. Three sermons, three skits, bunch of songs, bad music, staticky sound system, a little hot out. Everyone in the village is there. And then at the end... Uh, the, the question is on the table. Uh, does anybody want to buy a Bible? Because it's illegal to proselytize, so you can't give away literature, but you can, you can sell it. So anybody want to buy a Bible? One penny. Come buy a Bible. And so people would come and buy Bibles. How many? Oh, about 290 came and bought Bibles. And so each person would come and buy a Bible. And then after that happened, took, another, took an hour, then... Uh, my friend Satish says, now we'll just be here and we're just going to be here if anybody wants to pray with us. Um, and then an hour and a half, two hours later, we finally leave because so many people came for prayer. And then we go back to the Bible school and Satish says, the chief has said to me, now that you've converted this village from uh, Hinduism to Christianity, uh, we need a church and uh, we need a pastor. So, you know, we're praying in a circle, uh, and then two students at the end of like another hour prayer meeting, two students raise their hand. They say, hey, school ends in two weeks. Um, we'll go. We'll go pastor church. 
And I said to Satish, this is remarkable. He says, no, it's not. He says, it happens in every village. Everywhere I go, the same thing happens. I want to tell you something. The church in the developing world right now is exploding. Do you know that? It's, it's growing rapidly all over Africa, all over South America, all over Asia. And, and almost an entirely common theme in everywhere where the church is growing, poverty. Interesting. Like, why would that be? Well, Jesus, remember what Jesus said? It, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said. It's hard to be rich and enter the kingdom of God. Right? It really is. Now, why is it hard? Well, distractions, that's why. Because in that little village in India, there was, there, nobody owned a TV. It was 1994. Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, so that wasn't available. No golf courses, no tennis courses, no climbing gyms, no concert venues, no beaches, no sailboats, no hiking trails. There's a, there's a few kids with a, like a, a little ball of duct tape, and they're playing soccer in a field. But are you kidding me? Here's some people that want to come talk to us for an afternoon. We're in. Like our lives are that spacious. How, is your life spacious? No. So in the lack of spaciousness, we've adopted deceptive language. And we say, yeah, I'm, I'm with God, and I'll be all in. I'll be all in with giving. I'll be all in with serving. I'll be all in with using my gifts as soon as. As soon as I have a little bit more, a little bit more time, a little bit more money, I'm in, just not now. In that same chapter, Luke 14, where Jesus speaks of the unbuilt foundation, he also, he also speaks uh, a different parable of a guy throwing a party. And when he throws a party, it says in verse 18, uh, he invites people. And every person he invites, it says they all alike begin to make excuses. Excuses. Nobody said Ben, I don't want to come to your party because I don't like you. No one said that, right? Everybody's like this. Yeah, I really want to be there. Like, this parable is like the, like the Seattle freeze. You know what I mean? Like, hey, let's get together and have coffee, which means I never want to see you again. That's the code in Seattle. You try and build relationships, and people are outwardly friendly, but they always have a reason not to connect. This is the text. I'm right. There's a girl that I wanted to date when I was 16. And I, I, like, I asked her out. I was persistent, man. I asked her out like four times. Every time she had an excuse. Until, like, finally the fourth time, she said, and it's heartbreaking, but not now. I'm over it. But, like, <laughs> she, you know, she said, Richard, here's the thing. We just don't have anything in common. Like, don't ask me again. We don't have anything in common. Like, yeah, but I like you. Not enough. Okay, so that's it, right? Don't make excuses. The problem, says Haggai, is this. You're, look, your intent isn't revealed in what you say. Your priorities are. Your intent is revealed in your actions. If you say you want to run but you actually don't run, then you don't want to run. And if you say you're a mountaineer and you buy all the gear, but you actually never go in the mountains, you're not a mountaineer, even if you have a lot of REI points or whatever. <laughs> you know, you look cool. Like saying things doesn't make them priorities. It's, it's the investment of time and resources. So that's the first problem is they're deceived. 
Because they're like this. Yeah, we're all in, just not now. Right? That's the first thing. So second then, Haggai exposes the reality that they're not satisfied. And how does he do this? Well, look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Hey, consider your ways. Like he's holding up a mirror now. This is what he says. Here's your your life. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, not enough to be satisfied. You drink, not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. You earn wages, and you put them in a purse with holes. Look at verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little, because when you bring it home, I blow it away. So now, let's take a time out. You're saying that you want to give regularly, but you're not giving. You're saying you want to serve, but you're not serving. You're saying you want to be involved in a small group, but you're not involved in a small group. You're saying you want fellowship, but you're not seeking fellowship. And the reason that you're not is because you're like this. Right now, I'm too busy. Right now, I don't have enough money. Right now, I don't have the resource to invest in the story that God is writing. Haggai says, here's the deal. Take a look at your life. You think you don't have enough. In fact, you're right. You don't have enough. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough sleep. You don't have enough peace. You don't have enough joy. And because of all these not enoughs, you're not content either. But the solution isn't for you in your own self-referential bubble to try and get enough and then step into God's story. That's not the solution. God has built the universe in such a way that your desire is to live a relatively shalom-based life, carefree. And you long, we all long for it, right? We want to live a life of, of peace. That's why we go on vacation, or we should go on vacation. So we can enjoy life a little bit, right? So, so we, I understand that. God understands that. Uh, and, and yet, Jesus says, Though you're called to that, look, you're not living that way. And Jesus says it in Matthew 6. Haggai says it in chapter 1 there. But here's how Jesus articulates the same thing. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. This is what I'm telling you, says Jesus. Don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food? Isn't the body more than clothing? And then he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and you're worth more than they are. So God's desire here is that you would live uh, similarly to these birds, actually. It's not that they're lazy. The birds aren't lazy. We live in the mountains. We watch them. They're very active, but they're not worried. They're not worried, and they're they're not pondering, you know, oh, I wish I had more whatever. No, they're just living, and, and there's inherent in this a sense of enough, right? So he's saying, here's Jesus, he's saying that we can live with this quiet and quiet rest and confidence that God is going to take care of us and give us everything that we need, everything we need to be people of hope. Not, he's not promising that you'll be insulated from suffering, not promising that there won't be discouragement, is saying there'll be profound peace and joy and the capacity to bless others. It's there, it's yours, it's available, right? But here's the key to the whole thing. If I'm to know this sense of abundance, if I, so counterintuitive, to know the sense of abundance, I must shift my priorities and stop seeking abundance. I'm called, uh, we are called, people of little faith by Jesus in Matthew 6. Why? Because we're seeking to care for our needs first under the deceptive guise of a belief that once we meet our needs and have more, then we'll get involved in the story of hope that God is writing in the world. Once we have more money, once we have more time, then we're all in. And now, 
Haggai says, hey, verse 5 and 6, remember, take a look at your life. Do you have enough? And the universal answer is what? No, I don't have enough. I don't have enough money or time. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Did you know that uh, debt is just a way of life for Americans? Overall, U.S. household debt increasing by 11% in the, in the last decade. Average credit card debt, balance carry on a credit card, average $16,000. The bill comes in in a month. That's the average in America. And at time, we're working longer hours. We're taking less vacation. If you live in Seattle, you, you also have to add to that a longer commute. And there's a, kind of an explosion of activity options available. Sport options, entertainment options. We live in an experience-based economy now where people aren't just selling stuff but selling experiences. And so, so here we have all this at our disposal, all, all this time, all this money, and what are we short on? Time and money. <laughs> and so uh, then when you talk to people, our culture is now structured in such a way that it's, it's almost a, expected that when you say to someone, how's it going or how you doing, that part of the answer will include what? Oh, I'm too, so busy. Don't you hear that? Almost every time you talk to somebody, I'm so busy. Can I just invite a step back a little bit and recognize that's a pathology. It's not normal. It's normal in our culture. So in our self-referential culture, we go, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. Oh, good for you. You're busy. But no, it's not, it's not a badge of honor, actually. It's a, it's a symptom of a problem. So not enough time, not enough money. Haggai offers a solution. He, he says, look around. How you doing? How's this working out for you? This, this putting your priorities first. You know, building your paneled house while there's a foundation. How's it working? Do you have a sense of abundance? Do you have enough money? Do you have enough time? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, we don't have enough of either. So here's Haggai's solution. Chapter 1, verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring the wood, rebuild the temple. When? Now. Why? So that I may be glorified. Or Jesus said it this way, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will be added to you. In other words, here's the foundation. The foundation is Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then build on the, on the foundation of Christ, uh, Christ. More Christ. Christ's priorities, Christ's generosity, Christ's peace, Christ's service, Christ's kingdom, Christ's reign. Build. Build your life on the foundation of God's priorities and embrace the reality of John 10.10 that when Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundant, he came to make you a giver. <laughs> he, came, he came to so bless you and heal you and liberate you that you are now empowered to be a blessing in the world. So go be a blessing. When? Now. Even if you're having chemo, you can be a blessing to the nurse. Even if you don't have any money, so to speak of, you can be a blessing with the tiny bit that you have. Even if you feel like you don't have any time at all, you have time to be present with the people in your life right now. Become a blessing. Begin to invest in God's priorities. Because the reality is you are called to bless and give with both your money and your time. You, you and I are both called that way. And with respect to your money, God's given us kind of a norm in the Bible when he says to us, look, take 10% of your resources and give it faithfully to invest in the work that God is doing in the world. 
and make it uh, not the second thing you do or the thing you do with the leftovers. Make it the first thing that you do with the money that God has given you. The very first thing. It's called the first fruits all through the Old Testament. Start, start giving regularly. And if I could challenge all of us to one thing in this community, that would be one of the things that I'd challenge us with. It's to say, I don't give when it's convenient. I don't give when I have a ton of abundance. I take what God has given me, and I take that little 10% thing, and in the case of my wife and I, we contact the bank, and we say, uh, this is how much every month goes to uh, the church. And it just goes. It just goes every time. So that I'd never miss it, even when I'm on vacation or whatever. And this isn't about Bethany's needs. This is about us as disciples being involved in the story that God is writing in the world, listen, as a priority, because that's the point of Haggai. Where are your priorities? And if God is second, he's not first. And if God is second, then there will never be enough. That's what the text says. Uh, This uh, giving stuff, I don't talk about it much for a number of reasons, Uh, mainly because I was first a pastor in the 80s, and there were a lot of financial scandals with TV preachers. And so I kind of shied away from talking about giving. But that changed a little bit for me uh, when I went to Rwanda and saw our mission partners. Who's worshipped at a church in Africa before in here? Anybody? Some of you have. And when you worship at a church in Africa, you know that giving isn't kind of this incidental thing. It's like a, cent- it's a central thing in the service where there's a bucket up front on the stage and there's music playing and everybody comes up and they drop their thing in the offering kind of publicly and then they do a little dance. And like as an act of gratitude, yeah. I mean, I'm not a dancer, so forget that. But <laughs> you understand, like, yeah, it's great to give. It's great to give. And then, other, then people come and by the end, everybody's dancing all through the church. And there's this joyful music going, what a privilege. Look, God gave me 10 chickens. Here's one. God gave me 15 eggs. Here's two. God gave me this much money. Here's 10% or 12%. But I, it's a joy to give. What a culture. And not just, not just money, but time. Because to become the presence of Christ for other people means joining a small group, means using my gifts, means serving in different ways. So how do we apply this as we're going to wrap up here? Well, first of all, recognize uh, this temple stuff in the Old Testament isn't just about buildings. You are a temple. You're the temple. First Corinthians chapter 3. God says you're a temple, and so you, God is building you, and God can only build you to the extent that you are aligned with God's priorities, you see, using your gifts. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. So uh, God is calling you to be a temple. And then secondly, in Second Peter chapter 2, we're told that not only are you each individually temples and me, but that God is, we are being collectively a temple, being built as a temple. And each one of us in that temple, that is our life together, each one of us are called living stones. So God's building a temple using us as stones, and only to the extent that that my life is aligned with God's priorities will my stone represent the character of Jesus fully, do you see? And so the temple that God wants to build becomes, in a sense, in, in, in a sense, the temple becomes limited to the extent that we are uh, diverting our time and money to other things because we're discouraged and we step out of God's story. And when I step out of God's story, then the story of hope that God wants to write in the world is missing your sentence, your paragraph, your chapter. It's missing. 
So collectively, we're the temple of God. What does this mean for Green Lake? It's very exciting, actually, to me, what it means. I don't know if you know the history of Bethany. I think we're very rarely uniquely blessed in the sense that now, for the last 60 years, uh, Bethany Community Church has had two senior pastors. Two in 60 years. I don't know any other place where that happens. So we've had this beautiful gift of longevity and tenure. And in my own, I'm in my 22nd year. And I I feel like we're just now starting a third chapter in those 20 years. Chapter one was building. We were growing rapidly. We built this and we grew even again rapidly. Chapter two was this 2020 vision so that we're now six locations around our city. Chapter three. Yeah, we need to move, actually, from being consumers to disciples so that we can speak to a culture increasingly disillusioned with consumerism. People are wondering, where's the meaning in life? Because the meaning is not going to be found in the next uh, trip or Netflix subscription or eating out that will not ultimately sustain us. We're built to serve and bless and give. (laughs) And so to the extent that we step into that story, good things will happen. Christ will be made visible, not only in our neighborhood, but through our unique online presence around the world and beyond our neighborhood to, to to pastors and seekers and Christ followers everywhere, right? And, and, and we're launching a new leadership team for the Green Lake location tomorrow night. And there's new ministries uh, that will be unfolding as a result of that, and there's things already happening. The shelter, the meals, the teaching, the hospitality, the care for children, the mobile medical clinic, the partnership with Aurora Commons. I mean, God is doing amazing things right here, right now. And to the extent that we are stepping back and saying, I'm in as soon as we'll miss it. <laughs> We'll miss it. The Bible's filled with stories of people starting and not finishing. Israel leaves the wilderness, but doesn't enter the promised land. Israel begins under God's rule, but ends in civil war. People are compared to soil, uh, and then the the seed is sown, and it starts, but it doesn't bear fruit. Over and over again, starting, not finishing. Best example of starting, not finishing, Haggai. What does God say? He says, go rebuild. 1-8. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I haven't finished paneling my house. Start now with God's house. Haven't paid down my mortgage. Start now with God's house. Haven't finished college. Start now with God's house. Not married yet. Start with God's house. Get involved. And then here's the promise. Look at this. Chapter 2. As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. As you get involved in building the work that God is doing in the world, don't fear. Verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. And watch this. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, and I will give you peace. Chapter 3 will be better than chapter 2, just like chapter 2 is better than chapter 1. Why? Because we collectively have said enough with putting off serving. Now is the time to build the house of God. I was privileged this week to... um, teach down in California with a man who's a bit of a mentor of mine, actually. Stuart Briscoe, uh, is a, he's been a pastor in Wisconsin, and then 
he, he was pastor until the age of 70. And then when he stopped being the senior pastor, he stayed on staff but started preaching all over the world, uh, equipping pastors in the developing world and speaking at conferences and that kind of thing. And so we were speaking together, and his wife was speaking too. He's 86. And so now I get to say I'm only 61. I love that, right? And uh, what I love about Stuart and Jill is this. That they're still in the game, all in. All in at 86. He was leaving yesterday from the same airport as me. He said, if I make my flight in Denver, then I'll be preaching tomorrow in Michigan. And I'll do a week of meetings in Michigan. And then the next Sunday, I'll be in a different church. 86. And you know, this is what Stuart said to me just at the very end. He said, Richard, stay the course. It just keeps getting better. You want that to be on your tombstone? I do. <laughs> well, how does that happen? 1-8. Get on with it, man. Rebuild the temple. God's priorities first. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this word. Speak to us now as we respond. To the extent that we've been on the sidelines due to discouragement, to the extent that the resources of time and money have been diverted, thank you that you forgive us, but don't let us rest there. Move us into your story completely. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I couldn't uh, preach this sermon without taking the offering after the sermon. You know that. <laughs> it had to be that way. So as the ushers come, I am going to invite you to give. Know that uh, uh, in your bulletin it says that we're, sh we're short on our budget. It's a bit of a statement. Know as well that we've managed our expenses. Uh, we're not short on our cash flow. But there's, God has things that need to be done so that the hope found in Christ can pour into our city. And uh, this is how we do it. We participate together in giving. Uh, you can give online. You can give on a mobile app. You write a check. But I encourage you, this is my challenge to you, begin to give regularly, a monthly or weekly or however you do it, begin to give regularly as a next step in building the house of God. Let's worship together.